All right, well, welcome again. So Independence Day weekend is a weekend, or especially Independence Day is a day when we remember all of the sacrifices that were laid down that this nation might have independence. But in the Christian faith, one of the things that we remember is this, that there is a sacrifice that was done that we might have freedom. And it begs us this question, what terrible, horrible thing was it that it required the death of the Son of God to attain us that freedom? And that's the terrible thing we're going to talk about today called sin. Scott and I, and the, he's a production guy right back there. Y'all can wave at Scott. We were laughing. He said, you know, talking about sin on Independence Day is like talking about gluttony at Thanksgiving. <laughs> so I've got a task before me. But I want you to stick with me because I think this topic, this big idea in the scripture of understanding sin is important. Why does it matter Why should we even take a day like today to engage with a topic like sin? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. One, it makes the good news good. If you don't understand sin, the gospel loses its impact. If people don't understand the bad news, they won't embrace the good news. Let me give you an illustration. You see this vial right here? If I told you, and let's pretend for a second, this was the cure for cancer. 100% legitimate. What would the reactions of people in the room be? Some might say, applaud, that's just great, great for humanity. Someone's achieved something great. No personal connection. Someone might say, hey, you know what? I'd like to talk to you this next week. Could we have an appointment? Because we could make a lot of money on that right there. Personal gain. Somebody might say, you know what? I have a family member and my family member has pancreatic cancer. That's what my dad died from. My dad. I'd like to talk to you after the service because we have need in my family. But then there's others who would be in the room who have cancer. They know they have cancer. And the doctor said, you have a week to live. And they wouldn't even wait till I got done talking. They would already have stood up, raised their hand, been moving forward, walked up here, interrupted this service and said, I need this right now. Because if you understand the bad news, you embrace the good news, especially when it's personalized. One of the most common phrases out there in America and on billboards is this phrase, Jesus saves. Is that a true statement? You bet it is. You bet it is. But you know what people say? Save me from what? I don't need saving. Because if you don't understand, if people don't understand the desperate position that they stand in, in relation to a holy God, that they are broken, they are in need of rescue, they are in need of saving, if they don't understand the position that they stand in, in sin, they will never embrace that truth. They will never receive it. Second, it helps us understand life. It helps us understand the world that we live in. One of the reasons that I believe in Christian truth and, and what the Bible proposes and, and the truth that we see in Scripture is because I think it explains the reality that we live in. It's one of the best explanations for the reality we live in. We look at this world and we see uh, evil and hate and prejudice and selfishness and pride and insecurity and divorce and pain and shame and suffering. And we, where do these things come from? And the Bible has a clear answer. It's sin. 
The world is broken because of sin. And everywhere we look, we see the reality of sin. If you look at the world, if you look at the news headlines right now, every news headline I've read in the last few days, someone has invaded a space, uh, uh, a a restaurant or a coffee shop and have taken hostages and there's death and destruction around it. The other headlines I'm reading right now are moms hurting their children, some to death. I look at my own home. I see the fallenness of nature, of of my fallen sinful nature. But you know where I see sin more evident than any place? When I look in the mirror. When I look in the mirror, And I see my failures, my flaws, my lack of love at times, my selfishness, my pride, and all the things I see in myself, especially when I know who God is. (laughs) It helps me understand why something is broken, why this world is broken. And that helps push me towards what the solution is. An engineer comes in and says, how is this broken Therefore, this is how it's fixed. If you don't understand what's broken and why something is broken, you don't understand how to fix it. And for us, an understanding of sin points us back to a holy God who has to solve the problem. Third reason I'll give you this is it reminds us that we're meant for more. As believers, it reminds us that we as believers are meant for more. That God sent his son to rescue us for a purpose. We had a big problem and he sent a bigger solution. He did not send Jesus as an antibiotic ointment to put on a scratch. Jesus is not a band-aid. Jesus is the one who came in and rescued us from death row where we stood condemned to death in slavery because of that sin. And he brought us to the king's palace and gave us a seat at his table. Do not forget the utter detestability of sin. My hope for us today is that you see sin as utterly sinful. That you see sin as the one thing that broke this world, that broke our relationship with God, and that God must condemn and judge. It brings death, slavery, and separation. And Jesus did not pull us out of that so we we could continue to live in it. He meant for us to live a greater purpose. So those are some reasons why I think it's important for us to look at sin. So we're going to dive in. And here's the plan for this morning. I'm going to spend the next little bit, maybe a little longer bit, looking at sin. And there's no way I can cover every aspect of it, but I'm going to hit some big points. And then I want to talk to you about some of the things we're doing at Grace to meet the reality of a broken world. And then I'm going to have a good friend of ours, Matthew Alford, to come up. And he's going to share a testimony, a testimony of what it looks like to come out of the darkness and walk in the light. And then we're going to finish our time with communion this morning. That sound like a good plan? All right. Here's where we're going to start. What is sin? And we've got to start by dividing it into two parts. Okay, there's sin little s, sin big s. We're going to start with the little s. Because scripture gives us some pictures of what these things are. And let me give you um, a couple of verses here. One, Romans 3.23. When we talk about little s, all right, we've got, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we understand, first of all, that it's a falling short of some standard, especially the glory of God. And a great picture of this is that we miss. The idea of sin here is to miss. We miss the target. We miss the mark. And and we don't just 
miss the bullseye. We miss the whole thing. That's how bad we are. That's how high God's standard is. What did it say? His standard is his glory. It's his character, his person, his perfect character. He himself is the standard. And we fall short so far from that standard, it's ridiculous. But if his standard is his character, then what that means, just some ideas, and you can fill in anything in here. If God is kind, then unkindliness is sin. If God is pure, then impurity is sin. If God is truth, then lying is sin. In the next few weeks, athletes from around the world will descend on the Olympics and they will bring the best that man has to see in athletic ability. They will set world records. And you know what? Everything they do pales in comparison. It completely misses the mark of who God is. Because no man at his very best, with his very best effort, can match God's standard. Imagine if the Olympics were the Olympics of morality, that we brought the best of our moral humanity in front of the world and said, look at them. They would still fall so fall short, they wouldn't even hit the target. So first of all, sin, little less, the things we commit are missing the mark of God's perfect standard. The second idea that we see in scripture, Ephesians chapter two, one points this, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So not only is it missing a target, missing God's standard, it's also trespassing or stepping across, violating something he's laid down. We know that God has given us the law. We got the 10 commandments. We have the Mosaic law. You read the new Testament. God uh, uses Paul and the writers to say, here's the law that we're under now. And he says consistently, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. This is sin. This is not, don't do these things. And so when we cross a clearly revealed line by God, that's sin, but it's more than that. We see in Romans chapter two, 14 through 15, Paul's going to address something. In Romans, he's going to talk about what about those without a law specifically revealed that. And he's going to say this, for when the Gentiles who do not have a law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. So even if you don't have a specific law, thou shalt not commit murder, if it goes against your conscience, even for those who do not have law, if it goes against the conscience, because God has written the law of man in his heart. We have the image of God. And that image is tainted by sin, but it is still there. And that image bears witness, that law in our hearts. And when we cross our conscience, we cross and trespass a standard. Also, it goes even deeper than that. In Romans 14, most of the chapter, Paul's going to talk about causing a brother to stumble, putting something in front of a Christian brother or sister that might cause them to sin or fall on their faith. And he says this, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats or does that thing that causes the brother to stumble because he is doing it not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So it's not only a revealed law, it's, it's not only your conscience, it's, if it's not done in faith, it is sin. And I promise you, all of us trespass and violate that consistently. So that's what the little sins, as we look in the scripture, we see those two pictures of missing the mark and trespassing, crossing and violating a command, a conscience, 
or something out of faith. So here's how I would define a sin. Little s. A sin is anything we do, say, or think that misses or violates God's perfect standard. That's the little s. First picture we see in scripture. Now the big S, big S is a little bit different. Look at this verse. This is Romans 7, 8. Paul writing says, but sin taking the opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. The law says, do not covet it. And Paul says, but sin within me produced in me something. That's not committing a sin. That's something else, something more sinister, something causing me to do something. Romans 7, 17, Paul talking about his struggle with sin says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So sin, little s are the things we do, but sin, big s that we see in scripture is something internal. It's called also known as our sin nature. It's called the flesh. It's called the body of death. And, and here's how I would define it. It is that powerful force within our very nature bent toward rebellion against God. And it affects every aspect of our lives. It affects our mind, our emotions, our will, our bodies. It affects every part of our lives of how we see life, how we see others, even how we see ourselves. That's big sin. That powerful force bent toward rebellion. And then if I could picture it like this, if this big ass sin was a tree, a big oak tree that had its roots down deep into the very fabric of our nature, then its fruit that it produces are the little s sins. That makes sense to you? That's what sin, that's how Paul kind of paints the picture of what sin is, big s and little s. So how did we get it? (laughs) Where did this start for us? Why are we dealing with this issue from a biblical perspective? Well, let's talk about, there are kind of three ideas that you see Paul lay out um, in scripture. One of them we're going to start is original sin. This is what we inherit, okay, from Adam. And here's the idea. It passes from one person to the next. We know in Genesis 1 through 3, God created the world, the heavens and the earth, created all things, created man and woman, and he said they were very good. And when he created man, he created them out of the dust of the ground, ground, breathed life into them, but he created them with innocence, the ability to choose. And he gave them one command, don't eat of that tree. And they did. And when they did, sin entered in. And the fundamental nature of Adam and Eve changed. The image of God was tarnished at this point, And the fundamental nature of who they were was thoroughly impacted, completely changed. And we call this, there's a term that we call this in theological circles, it's called total depravity. It's not in the Bible, but it's a concept that we see in scripture. And here's what total depravity, it means that we are totally depraved. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, became totally depraved. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that mankind indulges in every sin to the fullest degree. It also does not mean that Mankind is not capable of good things. Even an unregenerate, non-believing mom loves their child. Even an unregenerate, unbelieving dad loves his son and daughter. We are still capable of good things because we have the image of God, but it is all tainted. It is all bent. It is all influenced. It is the fullness of who we are is infected and influenced by sin. 
Not that we're as bad as we could be, but there's nothing that's good ultimately in us. Everything is tainted by sin. If I took a fragrance and let it out in here and it would fill the whole room, just like sin infiltrates and fills every aspect of who we are. That's what sin does to us. And it's been passed on from Adam to his kids, to their kids, to all the way down to us. Let me show you where we see this in scripture. Romans 5, 12 says there, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world when he disobeyed and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because they all sinned. Why did they all sin? Why did they, because they inherited the nature. We were born with this same tainted nature. As one man put it, a sinner can only beget sinners and we are all born possessing not a nature to worship God, but a nature bent against him. That's why in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul can write, and we too all formally lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, by nature This is who we are. And if this were not true, let me say this. If we were born into this world without a sin nature, not having it passed on to us, then we would not be subject to death. Babies would not die. But that's not the case, is it? If we were born in this world without a sin nature, we would have the option, just like Adam and Eve had with a a free nature, a clean nature, that that we could choose to obey or disobey. And there might be people today who had no sin, but that's not what the scripture shows us. Death entered this world through Adam's sin and spread to all men because we all sin. And why do we all sin? Because by nature, we have sinful hearts. That's who we are. That's original sin. Now, it Paul's not finished. The scripture isn't finished on how we see how sin intersects our lives. There's another one called imputed sin. And this isn't a word we use at the dinner table. Could you impute those potatoes to me? Okay. Imputed is a word. And let me give you a definition. Pull this off my my, um, iPhone. Here we go. To ascribe to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. I'm going to try to explain this. But it's to charge to one another something that you possess. Let me give you the biblical illustration, and that's Christ. Okay? Christ, the sinless, perfect Son of God, completely righteous. And when one of us believes in Him, when anyone believes in Him, we come underneath His headship. And underneath His headship, not by anything that we bring, not by anything we do, He gives us His righteousness. His righteousness is ascribed to us. He charges His righteousness to us. So we receive the righteousness of Christ. So then when God looks on us, He doesn't see the sinful person. He sees the righteousness of Christ that has been given us. We've been covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us because we've come under His headship by faith. Now, here's the problem all of us have is that we are all under the headship of Adam, the human race. He was the first human, the representative of all human, the federal head of all of us. And because of that, he is our headship. And so when he sinned, he sinned for all of humanity and his sin is imputed to all of us. And that's how it looks. And that's the argument Paul's going to make. Look at the verses 
that follow in Romans 5, 18 through 19. Watch what happens. So then as through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to the life of all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, Adam. But even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. And so it's an issue of headship. We are all born into the headship of Adam because he is the head of all humanity. And when we, by faith, trust in Christ, we enter a new headship. And we were imputed his righteousness toward us. And so in Adam, one disobedience, one transgression brings condemnation to all men and many are made sinners. But in Christ, faith in Christ, his obedience is one righteous act, death on the cross, justification all and many are made righteous. That's the imputation of sin. It goes straight to us from Adam. So we inherit it and then it goes straight to us. And if that's not enough, the last picture that we're going to look at this morning is this idea of personal sin. And that is this, that every one of us individually has either missed the mark or crossed the line. And the scripture is very clear on that. And there's not one of us in here who could look at our lives and say, I have matched the standard of God. We have all, by anything we've said, done, or thought, missed or violated one of God's standards. So personal sin is the last picture that we see of sin. So we are thrice condemned as one man put it, thrice condemned. That's where sin intersects our lives. Romans 3.12 tells us about personal sin. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. We have all failed. That's where we get it. Now, how does it ultimately affect us? What are the major consequences of sin that we see in the scripture? Let me give you number one. Number one is separation. It separates us from the one who gives life. All right? Great verse, classic verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. What do you get a wage for? Something you earn, something you've done. And what we earn by our sin is death. And death is simply the separation of the body from the soul. That's, That's physical death. We're nothing but dust. When you add the soul, you have life. When you take out the source of life, there's death. It's separation. And the problem for all of us is the wages of sin is not just physical death, it's spiritual death. Because when we sin, when sin entered the world, mankind became separated from God, who is the giver of life. And if you're not connected to the giver of life, you have no life, spiritual life. And so you stand separated. But let me go in one step further. Romans 5 tells us this. This is a great verse. If for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And notice those words, enemies and reconciled. Now I want to show you a picture. We were reconciled. Who needs to be reconciled? Someone who is separated. When there's a division or disunity to be reconciled, you have to, you have, to have been apart or separated. And that's what it says. And it says we were enemies. And so this is a classic bridge diagram that a lot of Christians will use to help share their faith. And they'll say, we're separated from God from an eternal gulf that we can't cross. There's no way, no human effort could ever jump that. And we put the cross between it and say, if you'll just walk across by faith, then you can have a relationship with God. You can be reconnected with God. Christ fills that reconciliation. 
But here's one thing I want you to recognize. It's not like we're standing over here on the edge of the, of the cliff going, God, please let me come across. Please let me get there. I'm looking for you. No, the Bible says no one seeks God. No, not one. And it says we're enemies. That means we have guns and knives and rocket launchers. And we're saying, God, if I could get over there, I would do something against you. We are not friendly toward God. That's the kind of separation we're talking about. That's where sin has brought us. Not that we just long to get to God. No, we are enemies who have gone in the opposite direction, bent toward rebellion. Second thing we see. Oh, I want to do this really quick. Matthew. Okay, hey, Matthew's going to share his testimony in a little bit, but I'm going to use him as God right now. Matthew, would you go stand right there in the middle of our term? I want to give you a quick little illustration of how sin brings separation. Everyone turn and face Matthew. And here's what you'll see. Matthew is going to pretend to be God right now. When we are looking towards God, rightly related to God, you not only see God, but you see the faces of everyone else who's looking at God too. Now everybody turn away from God. Turn away from Matthew. Now you not only not see God, but you don't see anybody else. You only see the backs of their heads. Because sin, thank you, Matthew. Yes, awesome job, Matthew. Sin, not only when we're rightly related to God, we become rightly related with others. When we are not rightly related to God, when we are separated from God, we are truly, it may be deceived to think we are, are connected with people, but we're not. Not to the way God designed it. So it brings separation and influences and affects every part of our life. Next is slavery. A consequence of sin is slavery. John eight thirty four. Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Tim Sewell shared this with me. It says sin takes you further than you wanted to go. It keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. And it costs you much more than you thought you would pay. When we are born in this world, we are born into slavery. And it is as if we have a prison cell, excuse me, a cage. And on the outside, it is locked from the outside with a lock that cannot be broken by humanity, by any human effort. The bars are too thick and we are stuck there. And Jesus in his righteous act comes and opens that door, puts the lock in the key, slams that door completely open and calls us out of slavery. That's what Christ's death does for us. Now here's the problem. That's true of anyone who trusts in Christ, puts their faith in his death and resurrection. But that cage still exists. We don't lose our sin nature. And one of the problems that Christians have is that we often go back to the cage. We go in, we close the door, and we stay in here. And we were never meant for that. We were meant for more. So we're supposed to come out of the cage because the door is not locked anymore. We are not to be slaves anymore. And Paul is going to address this in Romans 6, 12 through 16. Just read, let let me read it to you. He says this, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust." That's not true of a non-Christian. That's true of a Christian that we can do that. He says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you any longer. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in continued death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? 
God saved us for more. Don't go back to the cage. Don't go back to slavery because that's what sin wants. And that's when we sin. It says right there, we are offering ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness and we are subjecting ourselves again to the slavery of sin because it wants to dominate us. It is a powerful tree. Galatians 5.1 says it was for the freedom, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Sin enslaves. And that's a fight we will have for the rest of our lives. That's why the last consequence that we see of sin is that it is a struggle. We don't lose that cage, we don't lose that tree when Christ saves us. We continue to have a flesh. We have the spirit now, but we continue to have the flesh. And we have to continually submit to Christ and not to sin. But it's a struggle. And I'm just going to let Paul speak for himself on the struggle. If you would permit me, I want to read you Romans seven fifteen through 25. Just let these words, the scripture, <laughs> meet you in the reality of our lives. He says this, For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, that God's standard is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it as redeemed, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, because I'm regenerate, right? But sin, which dwells in me, is the one doing it. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making a prisoner of the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. It is a struggle, and that struggle will continue in this lifetime until we receive resurrected bodies and the sinful flesh and nature that started with Adam is officially eradicated and removed, and the struggle ends. This is why the rocks cry out for God's redemption and the reconciliation of the world and the renewal of the world. This is why we long for heaven, because one day there will be no more struggle and none of the pain and shame and struggle and guilt that we see in this world. Because this world is broken. It is not fundamentally good. It is fundamentally broken. And the struggle continues. So how it affects us is through separation, slavery, and struggle. Sin brings the struggle. Now, how do we defeat sin? How is sin defeated in our lives and in this world? Well, we all know the great answer to this question, right? Through Jesus Christ, through his work, on the cross through his death, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin because we all deserve death, deserve the condemnation. 
of sin by a holy God who must judge sin. And Jesus said, I will take that condemnation. I will take that punishment that you deserve. And I will offer you life and freedom by paying you the price that you owe on the cross. And three days later, I will rise again, showing you that I have the power and ability to conquer death and sin. And if you put your faith in that, then you can experience freedom, life, But here's what he says to us, because I want you to remember, as believers, when we struggle, we have to keep Christ's death in our mind. We have to remember who we are, what he did for us in this life. Because you are saved by faith, but you continue as a believer to live by faith and reckon it true. Romans 6, 6 through 11, Paul is going to say this. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to it. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And listen to this. Even so, reckon, consider, yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Continue every day to reckon it true that you are dead to sin and alive to God so that we don't go back to a yoke of slavery. Continue to let the gospel of Christ, the good news, show you what the bad news is. The good news to give you light in what your life is supposed to be. Second thing we see in scripture is the spirit's work that God has put his spirit within us. That when we first believe in Jesus, God puts his spirit, his Holy spirit within you and gives you the power to overcome sin, but you have to yield to it. It's not an automatic. You're guaranteed not to sin and the spirit will take over. No, you must continue to abide in Christ, submit and yield yourself to the spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you are walking by the spirit, you cannot sin. When you're not walking by the spirit, you are opening yourself up to sin. So walk by the spirit. The scripture says, submit to him, yield to him. Well, one of the reasons we consistently tell you, should you spend time in the word? Yes. Should you be praying? Yes. Because those are ways that we humble and submit ourselves to God's spirit. And when we stop doing those things, when we stop seeking the Lord and walking with the Lord, we're not walking by the spirit. So we continue to ask you to do those things. And for me to do those things that we abide and submit and yield. Next is our confession. Sin has power in the dark. The cage exists in darkness. And when we bring confession, when we bring our sin to the light, it loses its power. And so it takes vulnerability with God, humility with God. It takes vulnerability with people to name our sin so that it has no power anymore. Now, we can always submit ourselves to it again, take on that yoke and present ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. But when it's got us, that cage that we go sit in, the reason it is able to keep us in it is because of guilt and shame. And Jesus says to us, I have paid the price for you. You don't need to have guilt anymore. 
You don't need to have shame anymore. In me, that is removed. That is the grace of God. And First John, John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness and sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin. To walk in the light is to bring forth the darkness in our lives and bring it to the light so that it loses its power. Last thing I would say is this. It requires others' help. It requires the community of faith to defeat sin. Hebrews 3, 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It takes the community of God, us being along other people who are like-minded, who are running after God, walking after God, walking by the Spirit, because when we do that, we have strength, with the people we walk with. We have people who speak truth into our lives, who go, hey, I've noticed this in you. It also gives us an opportunity to encourage our brothers and sisters. And when we encourage one another, it's unbelievable what we can attain in the spiritual life. If you put one horse in front of a sled, it can pull only so much weight. If you put Another horse in front of a sled, it can only pull so much weight. But if you put the two together, they can carry more weight and pull more weight than they could the total of them as individuals because they're together. And that's the bond of the community of faith. And and I want to tell you, um, this is a huge thing for me because at Grace Bible Church, we hold this so heartedly that Brad Evans, one of our pastors, and Brad, just give a wave. Brad Evans has been on staff here. For a long time, a long time, he's been in family ministry, men's ministry, associate stuff. He, he has done all of it. But one of the things that he has been tasked with by our elder board over the last couple of years is to figure out how do we help with the brokenness and the messiness of what it looks like to be a believer in a fallen world. Because there's not one person, there's no staff. Brian Fisher is just as broken and messy as the rest of us. So am I, so is Brad, and so are you. We are all folks who are walking in a broken world, dealing with a sin nature, and trying to figure out how to walk with Jesus. And one of Brad's great prerogatives for us as a church is how to think through how to care for all the pain and brokenness that we're experiencing in a church the size that we have with three campuses. And what we realize is this, there is no way that a handful of staff can meet all of those needs. And so he has really instrumented for us a, a paradigm shift to really think through that as we are in, grace, in groups with other members of our church and other followers of, followers of Jesus, that we have the opportunity to minister to one another because we really believe in the priesthood of believers. That all of us have the Spirit, not just pastoral staff or staff on the church, but we all have the Spirit. And we can all minister to one another. We can all speak into each other's lives. And more oftentimes, when you know the people that are next to you and you've walked through life a little bit, you speak more powerfully into their lives than someone who doesn't know them. And so we really desire for all of you to be in a community. And we call those grace groups. I feel like a broken record. I say this almost every time I stand up here, but we mean that. 
If, if, let, me, let me give you an illustration. Let's say persecution hit America right now really hard and we, our funds were dried up. There was no staff. There was no building. How would we walk with Christ? And those days may not be too far ahead. Let's just be honest. How would we walk with Christ? We would walk like the Chinese church is walking in China in, in very secret small churches. We would gather together as believers. We would find out those people who believe in Christ, who have the same ideas that we do about who Jesus is. And we would say, let's walk together so we could encourage one another. And you know what? There probably wouldn't be a professional pastor in those people. But we would have to encourage one another. We'd have to meet meet each other's needs. We have to help deal with the sin issue. That's what the early church did. It wasn't this professionalism that we see today. So we want to encourage you to do that. And some of you may say, well, I don't know how to do that. You did. You are the professional. You got training. Well, one of the things Brad has offered and and put into play for us is a class called Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. And it is a look at how do you encourage, how do you help each other and build into one another godliness and, and life. It gives you some tools to how to address issues of sin and struggle And I want to encourage all of you, anyone is welcome to take that. We'll be doing that on Sunday mornings in the fall. You can sign up. I'd love to see 100 people in there. I'd love to see us have to kick somebody out of some room so we could do it. Because that's where life happens, is when we're together. There are other resources online. And I want to tell you, you go to gracebible.org, connect, care. And there are other ministries like Grief Share prayer ministry, visitation ministry. And I just want to encourage you, if you're not in a grace group, get in a grace group. If you're in a grace group, love one another. Become equipped on how to help one another so that when someone is in need, their first call is into the church office. It's to someone who's walking beside them. And last but not least, think through how you can serve other people in the church to care because we are all in this together caring for one another. I want to invite Matthew up now. Matthew... Um, Walford, and you're going to be in for a special treat. And here's the thing. I've talked about sin. I've talked about some of those things. But this is, this is where life has happened, where sin has had strength and power in his life, and he has seen God move in his life and, and the people and the body of Christ and find freedom. So give, his, give him your undue attention and be blessed by what Matthew's about to share with you. Thanks, Zach. Um. Fortunately, this is God's story, so you don't have to worry too much about what I have to say. Howdy. Howdy. My name is Matthew. I'm a believer in Jesus that struggles with alcoholism and cocaine addiction. I grew up in a loving Christian home uh, with two parents, a sister, and a dog. Three of the, some of those people are here today. The dog's not, but. Um, My dad has been a preacher or a minister for literally my entire life. Uh, In fact, my mom went into labor with me on a Sunday morning. Um. So I've been interrupting church my whole life also. Um, I guess you could say that I grew up in church. I gave my life to Christ and was baptized on July 5th of 1993. Being the preacher's son, I was often called upon to lead singing or read scripture or some visual point. Thank you for the reminder of that today, by the way. As a matter of fact, one time at a, at a camp uh, in, in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, my dad taped a bunch of flash paper. I don't know if you know what flash paper is. It's like a magician's tool. But he, he taped a bunch of that to my shirt and then lit it on fire. Um, I don't really remember what point he was making. I, I know it was really cool, and I know that my mom was not with us that week to object. 
Um, the point I'm trying to make is that I, I had a really solid Christian upbringing. Uh, growing up, we read the Bible together. Um, we were at church three times a week, minimum. Uh, we prayed together. And yet with all of that going on, and all these things going for me, I fell into sin. I drank for the first time when I was 15 years old. And I got blackout drunk for the first time a few days after my 16th birthday. That became a reoccurring theme in my life. You see, I had this low self-esteem and a desire for approval that found me drinking more and more throughout high school. See, it wasn't enough for me to simply drink with my friends. I had to be the best at it. By the time I graduated from Bryan High, I was drinking to excess almost daily. I was still active in church throughout this time, but I tried my best to hide my sin and my pain. Church was the place to wear my mask, not to be authentic. This continued for a very long time. About a month after my 21st birthday, I tried cocaine for the first time. It terrified me, and I told myself that I would never touch it again. I was wrong. One of the things that I've learned about sin is that it tends to lead to more sin. And so one night, a couple of years after, or a few years later, after a few drinks, I tried cocaine again. And this time, it was as if I had found my reason to live. From that point on, I began to add cocaine to my drinking routine. Within a couple of months of that, I was out of control. I was involved in a single vehicle accident one night that I have zero memory of. Fortunately, I was not hurt, but it was a wake-up call. I came clean to my parents about my drinking and cocaine use and asked for help. The parents didn't know what to do, so we made an appointment with my doctor. He He suggested that I go into an inpatient treatment hospital. Essentially, that's rehab, but it's also a class three mental institution. Some of the things that they tell you when you're there that you didn't know going in. Um, So uh, a few days later, I took off to go to the hill country of Texas for 30 days. While I was there, I was introduced to the 12-step recovery for the first time. And as I read the steps on that first day, I realized something. This is all about God. I know all about him. This will be easy. I was wrong. Um, after I got home from treatment, I worked in the program of recovery, uh, but I never really gave myself to it fully. After about six months, I was still sober, but I decided that I no longer needed to be going to my meetings. I didn't need to be held accountable, and I didn't need the community that I had formed there. So I struck out on my own to do my own thing. Around this time, the church where my dad is a minister was in need of a youth minister. And so I applied uh, for the position. And I was not hired in a permanent role, but I was hired in an interim role. Um, the church was very aware of my former struggles and, like me, believed that those struggles were behind me. With this new role, I flourished. Uh, I was not really going to meetings or doing anything intentional to maintain my sobriety, but I was able to stay sober during this time. That ended quickly, though. You see, a permanent youth minister was hired, and I was no longer needed. I began to resent the church. They had not properly thanked me for all the hard work I had done for our youth group for those eight months. It was all about me, right? I was angry, and I kept it bottled up. Two weeks later, I was drunk again. And this is really where cocaine took hold of my life. See, it was a whole lot easier to hide cocaine use from my family and girlfriend and friends than it was to hide drinking. Drunk Matthew is really easy to spot. So I began to use cocaine pretty much exclusively. I didn't know what to do with the pain and anger I was feeling, but the drugs took that feeling away. But now I needed to feed that monster. See, I mentioned earlier how sin leads to more sin, and that was certainly true at this time of my life. Pretty soon, all I cared about was cocaine. 
and how I could get more of it. I spent every penny I could get my hands on, and when that wasn't enough, I began to steal things from my parents pretty much exclusively. Whether that was money or electronics or tools, really anything that I could get my hands on that I could turn into cash to turn into cocaine and feed my addiction. This went on for a while, um, all the while lying about it every time something was missing. Um, No, I don't know where that VCR is. Sorry, I don't know. Um, This went on for a while, and um, everything kind of came out. It was a big mess, and um, something needed to change. And so I got back into recovery. But again, my heart really wasn't in it. Over the next couple of years, it was very back and forth. Uh, there was a lot of highs and a lot of lows, um, from yeah, from jails to mission trips, literally. Um, sometimes within just a few weeks of each other. Um, I did manage to meet a beautiful woman on my third mission trip in uh, the northern district of Belize, and we fell in love and got married in December of 2012. She'd been living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for our entire relationship and moved here so we could begin our married life together. Unfortunately, I was living a lie. I was working 12-hour days, six days a week, to support my nearly $1,000 a week cocaine habit when we said I do. And she had no idea. Our marriage started off poorly, obviously, as I was not able to contribute financially or emotionally. Uh, When she realized what was happening, she caught me red-handed. She made it clear that things needed to change. Um, So I I tried to quit. And I promised her that I would quit. And every time I promised her that, I meant it. And every time I promised her that, I lied to her. I could not stay sober for more than three weeks. And that was the first eight months of my marriage. On July the 23rd of 2013, uh, at the urging of my counselor that I was seeing at the time and my wife, I walked through the doors of Celebrate Recovery at Grace Bible Church for the first time. I was nervous, I was angry, I was resentful, I was hopeless, and I was hungover. I've been sober since that day. When I got to CR, I was willing to do anything, and so I did everything that I was told or asked to do. One of the focal points of Celebrate Recovery is confession and accountability. Um, In step four, we make a moral inventory of ourselves. In step five, we confess our faults to ourselves, to God, and to someone we trust. Step six, we become willing to have God remove our defects of character. And in step seven, we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Essentially, that means we admit our wrongs and our poor choices to each other. We look for the reoccurring patterns, and we seek God's help in ridding our lives of that sin. This is an ongoing process. It is even ever-evolving as we deal with one sin, we find something else to work on. The key to this process is being to this process being effective is rigorous honesty. See, I realize that we are not identified by our sin. We are identified by who we are in Christ. And with that in common, the sin or the issue or the hurt or the habit or the hang-up that we're dealing with loses its power. So our power comes from Christ and from meaningful connections with other sinners just like me. We have a phrase at uh, Celebrate Recovery that you are only as sick as your secrets. You've probably heard that before. You see, transparency takes that sickness away. In fact, James 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. See, I grew up in church. 
And I spent a lot of time reading the Bible and trying to live out my faith accordingly. But I never understood what this verse meant until I came to to CR and took off my mask. It is amazing to see how much healing I have seen in my life as a result of living this way. I am not perfect. I still struggle daily, but I now have a plan of action to overcome those struggles. I'll leave you with this verse that I use as my own mission statement for life. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Thank you. If I could have the men who are going to do communion going back. Matthew, thank you. And thank you all for the applause that you gave him. A life that is transformed, a life that is changed, is one of the great testimonies of a God who saves. Of a God who has the power to deliver from sin and death. That is one of the most powerful moments. And so as the men come forward and we participate in communion to end our time this morning. Would you relish in the fact that God has that power and that God saved us out of that cell, that death cell, to seat us at his table, to give us life, and that he wants us to live life, not to go back to a yoke of slavery, but to have a life that is transformed, that is lived out in a light that is powerful way that others might see, that others might see that their, their bondage and slavery can be dealt with too. Think about that as we pass this out. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Father we thank you that you have given us life and that this detestable horrible sin that entered this world through one man, through the one man, Jesus Christ, it has been dealt with. And I pray, Father, we long for that day when it will be eradicated from our existence. I pray, Father, that we would go forward today out of this place as lights, as people who have been transformed, remembering that you saved us for more. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a very good 4th of July. <laughs>